All right, everybody, we're going to go ahead and get started. Uh, thank you all for being here. I'm going to push this a little bit closer. Uh, time is about 8.45, so we're going to go. We'll probably end a little bit early because it's Sundays in July. It's always a good time to get to fellowship, meet people, learn the name of that person that you've called brother uh, the last 10 years. Uh, now you could just call them by their first name, maybe. Uh, but thank you so much for being here. My name is... Uh, Josh Petrus, I'm the high school pastor here at Grace Church. This session, as you can see, uh, is called Group Project, How the Whole Church Evangelizes Together. Um, so if uh, you're in the wrong one uh, and you misread the signs on the door, now is the time to sneak out when I pray and in a second just do so subtly. Um, no, thank you guys uh, for, uh, for being here. It is a, uh, a joy to get to serve as the high school pastor here and uh, looking forward to, uh, to doing this session here this morning. Uh, this morning, we are going to be talking about evangelism, uh, which is, I know, always the, an encouraging and convicting topic. Uh, my hope here is that this would be uh, helpful for you, an encouragement to you, uh, and a, a very practical session as well. And as we get started, uh, I'm just going to go ahead and now recommend three books. Uh, these books help shape uh, this, this talk, and uh, they're helpful for you. So three books I'd highly recommend. First one is Evangelism uh, by J. Max Stiles. Uh, that one is going to very much the, the practical aspects of that book you'll see fleshed out in this sermon. The other one is The Gospel and Personal Evangelism uh, by Mark Dever. I think that book might actually be free online. I think you could find a PDF on that one and save the money. Uh, and all of these, though, are for sale in the bookstore. So, I mean, you could, you could buy them and still support the bookstore, but I'm just, I'm just trying to help you out in case you want freebies. Uh, last one, J.I. Packer, Evangelism, the Sovereignty of God. Uh, great book, wading through that... Uh, that issue that many people deal with. So why don't, we, uh, why don't we go ahead and pray, and then we can get started. Father, we are so grateful for the time that we have to gather this morning. We're so thankful each Sunday that we get to gather together with your people and hear from your word and bring worship to you. Lord, I pray in this session and all the sessions that you would build up your church. Uh, we thank you that you do sanctify us in your truth. Uh, that your truth does make us wise and that your truth does expose our sins and that your truth does encourage us. Uh, we thank you that your word is reliable. And Lord, we pray now uh, that you would help us to be doers of the word and not merely hearers. Pray, Lord, that you would give us a heart for the lost and an understanding of how the church could do that together. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, the, uh, the theme is, we are calling it Group Project, and uh, I did, uh, prior to being a high school pastor, teach high school math for a couple years. Um, so I always joke that I used to rob people of life, now I try to give life. Uh, but it's, you know, as bad of a joke as I just told it there. Um, with, uh, group projects are funny when you announce to high school students, like, hey, we have a group project uh, that we're going to do right now. It is funny, because before you can even explain what the project is, they all start making eyes at each other across the room. Like, let's be on our team. Let's, you know, why don't we team up? They don't even know what it's going to be. Uh, but a lot of them like group projects, and another half of them uh, don't like group projects. Because for some, group projects means uh, you're going to carry all the weight, and I'm going to sit back and watch you earn an A for me. Uh, but what I want you to see is, is evangelism is a group project. It's the good kind of group project. And for us to really understand it, I want you to take your Bible and go to Genesis chapter 1. Uh, Genesis chapter 1. Uh, we love, uh, I know we just had the missionary conference 
at our church this past week. We love missionaries. We love stories of missionaries. Uh, personally, I have a handful of missionary biographies that, uh, that are encouragement to me. Uh, I love the story of John Patton uh, going to the New Hebrides, wit- uh, witnessing, bringing the gospel to, to cannibals there in modern-day modern Vanuatu. I love the story of William Carey going to India. His, his catchphrase, his saying was, expect great things from God, attempt great things for God. Uh, I love the story of Adoniram Judson, who spent 38 years in Burma, had decades without a convert, and still continued to be faithful to explain and preach the gospel. Uh, we love these stories of men who go and proclaim the truth, men and women throughout history who have shared the truth uh, with those who do not know it. What I want you to see today, we're going to flip around at the beginning, is I want you to see the missionary heart of God. I want you to see that what you find throughout the Bible is that the greatest missionary, the greatest evangelist, the one who's been most devoted to the proclamation of the gospel to the lost, is God. And we'll see this starting in Genesis chapter 1. So Genesis chapter 1, starting in verse 26, God speaks it says, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. What you find here is that God creates man in his image. And what does that mean? There's been a lot of you know, discussion of what that has meant uh, over the centuries. Does that mean that we're rational uh, in the way that the animals are not rational? Uh, does that mean that we've got characteristics, like we can show love, not to the same degree that God shows love, but we could show love? And uh, there's a, a likeness to God that we have. But what that also includes, when you think image, think representation, Think an image is representation like these lovely posters we have in here this morning. A representative of, well, I'm not sure exactly. Morgan can explain to me what all those animals are this week. But I know they're representative of VBS. One of them is a badger, I thought. But I could be wrong. He is nodding. Yes, good. Okay, I'm learning the different animals in here. Right? But when you see that, that's representative of, we had VBS in here a couple weeks ago. And I do know that my son is in trackers and the meerkat, I think, is the top one. And that represents their group right there. So it's, it's representative. Images have representation. Well, when God creates man in his image, he created man not just like him. He created man and woman to represent him, to show the world what he is like. And so man's original design, and therefore as Adam and Eve were to be fruitful and multiply, was that man's job was to show what God was like. As you know from Genesis 1 through 11, that does not go very well. Uh, Adam and Eve disobey. Their kids disobey. Uh, In fact, the world gets so wicked in Genesis 6, God decides to flood the earth and start over. He chooses Noah, who's almost like a second Adam, and like a second Adam, he also disobeys. And then God has to create new languages because they're so wicked, he needs to divide up the world into nations. So flip ahead to Genesis chapter 12. We see the next step in God's plan. He has a a man, Adam, that was supposed to represent him. And so in Genesis 12, God takes the next step. How is God going to redeem this world? How is this whole world ultimately not going to fall under God's wrath? Well, Genesis 12 says, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country, in your kindred, in your father's house, the land I will show you. And I will make you a great nation. 
And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So what is God's plan to reach the world? He's going to pick a nation, a representative country, a country that is unique, that is special, that belongs to God, so that that nation could be a blessing to the whole earth. That's God's missionary plan. That's the missionary family that he's going to send. It's the nation of Israel. Let's jump ahead. We see God explain this more. Go to Exodus. Jump ahead to Exodus. So again, what we're seeing is this plan of God to reach the earth, to bless the world. He does so, proclaims Genesis 12, that he's going to have a nation. Look at Exodus 19. This is Exodus 19. Uh, this is after, the, uh, after God has delivered Israel from bondage to Egypt. Uh, this is after all the, the Prince of Egypt stuff that you saw in the cartoon movie. Uh, but there's still, you know, 22 chapters left of Exodus. And what is God going to say to these people that he's delivered them? Why has he delivered them? Well, Exodus 19, verse 1 says, On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out from the land of Egypt, on the day they came into the wilderness of Sinai, they set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness at Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain. While Moses went up to God, the Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to Egyptian, the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. You see that again. That's a specific, special nation. And then he says, And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you shall speak to the people of Israel. Now think about that again. You know, I, I know priests were like, okay, we're Christian, not Catholic. We got one priest. I've read Hebrews. I get that for a second. But, okay, he calls them a nation of priests. Well, what does a priest do? What does a priest do? Well, what a priest does is a priest is a sort of representative, a go-between, Right? Bad Catholic theology, confess your sins to the priest so that God will forgive you. Well, that's bad, but get the idea there. That, that's a representation, a go-between. So when God picks Israel, what he's saying is, these people are my representatives. You are going to represent me to the world. And God's heart was not just, I'm just saving Jews and those of Jewish blood. No, his heart was, I'm going to extend my grace to all the earth, and Israel's going to be the vehicle. It wasn't a go out and tell evangelism. It was a come and see evangelism that as the world saw Israel, they were supposed to see the God of Israel and they were supposed to be one to that God. That was the heartbeat of God, like a, a mirror pointing upwards, showing the, the splendor and greatness of who God is. And that's what we see, friends, if you read the Old Testament. I mean, chapter 19, it's Moses' father-in-law, Jethro, who, convinced, who, uh, who states that Yahweh is the only God. He's a Gentile, and yet he confesses faith in Yahweh. You see it in the book of Joshua with Rahab, right? Uh, a Canaanite prostitute who comes to have faith in Yahweh. The book of Ruth, which everybody loves. 
You know, good story, maybe not the best dating advice, but still good love story there. Uh, the book of Ruth is about a Moabite who comes to place her faith in Yahweh, says, your God will be my God. That's God's evangelistic heart. Uh, go to Psalm 66. Let's jump ahead. I promise we won't turn left. Everything's going to, we're going to just keep going right, keep going right. So Psalm uh, 66 now. Uh, this is the heart of the psalmist. It was always a let's uh, God's heart to bless the nations. Psalm 66, verse 1, shout for joy to God, all the earth. Sing the glory of his name. Give to him glorious praise. Say to God, how awesome are your deeds. So great is your power that your enemies come cringing to you. All the earth worships you and sings praises to you. They sing praises to your name. It's this hope that all the world will worship him. Look at Psalm 67. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face shine upon us that your way may be known on earth, your saving power among all nations. Let the people praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy. For you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon earth. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. And then, of course, you, you know this one, the, the shortest psalm, the shortest chapter that we have in all the Bible, Psalm 117. Only two verses, but again, uh, portrays the same message. Praise the Lord, all nations. Extol him, all peoples. For great is his steadfast love toward us, and the faithfulness of the Lord endures forever. Praise the Lord. It's been the heartbeat of God from the beginning that all the nations would put their hope and their trust, and their faith in him. And Israel was supposed to be that vehicle. And if you've read through your Old Testament, you come to a point in, in Kings that it gets really, really close. Remember, you've got Solomon. You've got the temple is built. So what happens? Israel has a king. Israel has a nation. This king is wise. This king seems to be godly. You've got the queen of Sheba come. All of a sudden, that's nations. They're coming, they're seeing how great Israel is, and you're like, all right, this is it, it's gonna happen. And then they blow it, starting with Solomon. Uh, multiplied money, had multiple wives. They fail in their mission. And yet, whereas Israel fails, we see that God still plans to accomplish his purpose. Uh, go to uh, Isaiah now, Isaiah 42. Isaiah 42, verse 6. This is God, and in this section of Isaiah, he's speaking to his servant, who is the Son, who is Christ. And he says to him, Thus says God the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. Verse 6, I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness, I will take you by the hand and keep you. This is him speaking to the son. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations. Again, his plan is a national salvation. Jesus was not just a Jewish Messiah. He was a global Messiah. Take a look at Isaiah 49. Isaiah 49, verse 5. And now says the Lord who formed me from the womb to be his servant. This is 
the second person talking, to bring Jacob back to him and that Israel might be gathered to him for I'm honored in the eyes of the Lord and my God has become my strength. He says, God says, it is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. Rather, I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. It says it's too small a thing that you would just be a savior for Israel. Rather, my plan for you is that the son would be a savior of all nations. Let's go to one more verse, and I'll give you a break for the sake of carpal tunnel. I'll preserve you. Go to, uh, go to Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4. When we see Christ come on the scene, we see that this is exactly his expectation. This is exactly what he had planned. Luke chapter 4. Uh, there's this buzz uh, that Jesus is the Messiah. Uh, there's this expectation that the Christ has come. The baptism of Christ has already uh, occurred. And the Jews are excited. And if you read the Gospel of Luke, this, these are the, the first words. This is the first sermon uh, that Jesus preaches. And so there's some expectation with this sermon. And so in verse 18, it says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. Now feel the, the tension in this moment. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all the Jews, what? They celebrated. They rejoiced. Yes, our Savior, our Messiah is here. Uh, they, they are thrilled. This is the one that they have been waiting for. And then take a look at verse 24. He said to them, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah. And when the heavens were shut up for three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land. The Jews have been familiar with this story. This is the great famine that happened during the time of Elijah. There were many widows, but Elijah, verse 26, was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. Land of Sidon, you know what that meant? She was a Canaanite, a Gentile. Verse 27, there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them were cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. Here's what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying, I know you guys are excited about Messiah, but just to be clear, I am not just a Jewish Messiah. I am a global savior. The response of the Jews, they want to kill him, and Jesus escapes. A very Jesus thing to do. But that's, the, that's his heart, is he wants to see the, the nations repent. This is God's missionary heart coming to fruition in the person of Christ. Take a look. I've got verses up here on the screen now. Uh, we see this going forth now. This becomes the expectation of the church. Acts 1.8, after his resurrection, Jesus says, You will receive power and the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all of Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. 2 Corinthians 5.18-20, Now all these things are from God who has reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. 
namely that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. You see, in the New Testament, a switch has happened. God still wants to reach the nations, and he still chooses a people to do that, but it is no longer ethnic Israel as the vehicle. The church becomes the vehicle. Our mission becomes to be the ambassadors of Christ, to, as though God were speaking through us, tell the world, be reconciled to God. I mean, tell me if, uh, you know, this, this language sounds familiar. First Peter 2.9, it says that we are a holy nation, a royal priesthood. Uh, that, that sounds familiar. Uh, that is because that's what we're supposed, that's, we are the, those who have the, the mission to share the gospel. First Peter 2.12, keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles so that in the thing which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. This is Christ's plan that the Gentiles may know. And by the way, this will happen. This is what Revelation 5 tells us. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals. For you, the Lamb, were slain and purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and a priest to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. Friends, that's the good news of what God is doing in this universe. By the way, you should be thankful because I don't think a lot of you come from Jerusalem, right? Uh, sometimes we read the missionary passages like, thank God that the U.S. is God's sending agency. <laughs> wait, wait a second. This was a, a startup that started with bad expectations in Jerusalem. And it has grown into this, this global group of people that all love Christ, that are following after him. That's what we wait for in heaven. Again, Revelation 7, 9, I looked and behold, a great multitude which no one could count from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues were standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes and palm branches in their hands, and they cry out with a loud voice saying, salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. I mean, it would have been glorious enough if God had saved one sinner because of our sin. But in God's grace, he is purchased for himself through Christ, multitudes and multitudes from across the world. Now, I think you're in Luke. I told you I was going to have you turn left, but now I am. Go to Matthew 28. This is where the, the practice of our talk comes today, of our sermon today. Matthew 28, we then find our mission. We then find what it is that we are supposed to be doing. Matthew 28, 18 to 20, we're familiar. We just looked at this last Sunday night. It says, and Jesus said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This is our mission. This is what we are supposed to be doing. We are supposed to be making disciples, making followers of Jesus Christ. And in this passage, what you actually find are, uh, you, you see two goals that we're supposed to have. Uh, you see that we're supposed to make disciples. What does it look like to make disciples? It's baptizing them and teaching them. That is, baptizing them 
seeing people come to trust Jesus and then teaching them to what? To obey Jesus. That is our mission in this world. Uh, We exist, the mission of the church. If you were to ask, what is it that Grace Community Church is supposed to be doing? We have three goals, to worship God, to see people come to know Christ, and to see people grow in the way that they obey Christ. Now think about that in terms of the car ride home. You all know what the car ride home is like after church. You walk seven miles to find your car. You walk to the west lot and you actually were in the north lot. And now you got to deal with that. You're hungry, borderline hangry. You know, you're working through all those different things. And then the question always gets asked, how was church today? And typically you could say, good. And then you have to ask, well, how do you know it was good? And if, you know, you're like me, you're tempted to say, well, the sermon was good, so it was good. Or the songs, I don't know. It wasn't really the song. Didn't we do that song a couple weeks ago, right? Or maybe it is your parking spot uh, that uh, made or or broke your Sunday morning. You actually got a main lot spot. Uh, Yahweh had favor on you, and so it was a good day, or... It wasn't, oh, what are the things? The quality, the donuts were okay. Uh, you know, what, what makes it a good Sunday? Well, actually, in this passage, it tells us what makes Sunday a good Sunday or not. Was the gospel proclaimed to non-Christians? And were believers built up? Every time we get together, those are our goals. We, we want to see God exalted. We want to see the lost called, persuaded to come to Christ. And we want to see believers built up. Those are really, that's what makes Sunday a good Sunday. Or if, if we fail to do those things, then it doesn't make Sunday a good Sunday. If we lose focus, we don't uh, prioritize what really matters. Uh, by the way, this has nothing to do with the church bulletin, the schedule. This measure has to do with you. So what makes Sunday a good Sunday, what makes us those who are fulfilling the Great Commission, is are we those who are playing our part? Uh, I like going to Dodger games. I liked it more two years ago before they went to the World Series and they were much cheaper then, Uh, but that's okay. Parking is doubled in two years. It's the cost of success. Uh, But I like going to games and I like bringing my, my son to games, but my son and I have different priorities when we go. I want to watch baseball. Jude is convinced that he's there to play baseball. He's, he's thinking about it. He's trying to figure out how to get on the field. We, uh, we did the run the bases on a Sunday afternoon uh, a few weeks ago, and he, all he could think of was like, well, I need to go out in the outfield too. They didn't let him on, Dodger fans, whatever. So, but anyway, like that's, that's it. It's participation. Well, in the same way, our desire should not just be viewership. It's participation. And for this specific emphasis, participation in calling the lost to come to know Jesus. Evangelism, friends, is our responsibility. It is us who, 1 Peter 2.9, are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possessions who proclaim the excellencies of him who has called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. It's something that we have the responsibility to do. It's not something that they do or the professionals do or the gifted evangelists do. We are the people of God that God is using to reach the lost. Uh, Proverbs 24, 11, deliver those who are being taken away to death and those who are staggering to the slaughter, oh, hold them back. This is our call. Now, at this point in the sermon, whenever you're talking about evangelism, 
there's many different reactions. I've got three right now. There's many different thoughts, emotions maybe running through your mind, uh, maybe some combination of all three. One of them is exhilaration. One of them is, wow, this is amazing that we get to do this. That God has not only rescued me, but then wants to use me to proclaim the grace that I've been shown. Uh, that, that is a humbling privilege that we've received. Another one is fear. Because you're like, oh man, now I'm going to have to do some weird things if I'm going to really be a Christian. This is going to be strange. Or the third, the third one is guilt. Like, ah, oh, yeah, this is the part where Josh is now going to talk about all the things I should have been doing, and I know I should have done it. And that's, it's kind of like when we go to the dentist, did you, have you been doing this? Well, you know, you're looking at my mouth right now. And I have, anyway, that's, that's, that's my story, the dentist. Anyway, it, it's, what, what I want you to see is maybe, maybe it's a combination of all three of these things. Maybe you're thinking, I've got to do this. I've got to step up. Here's, here's my heart desire this morning is I want to encourage you in the area of evangelism. And I want to encourage you to, to think about it a little bit differently. There are ways that I'm sure you need to change. There's ways that I need to change. I need a change in boldness. I need a change in priorities, in discipline, even just compassion for the lost. But this morning, I want you to think about evangelism in terms of us. I want you to think of evangelism not as some rogue, lone ranger, I'm going to get out there and convert the masses because I'm some sort of super Christian. And then we go with that expectation that what happens you know, somebody asked us what we did on Sunday. We're afraid to tell them we went to church. And they went, oh, I guess I'm not that super Christian. And then we feel guilty and ashamed. And I guess that's just not my gift. Uh, you know, that, that's what we come up with. Well, no, no, that's, uh, that's not the right response. Now, I want you to think about how we, as a group of people, are supposed to be evangelizing it because that's what we're called to do. And it's not just an individual operation. It is, as I titled this, a group project. It is something that we do together. God brings us together in the local church so that as a unit, we would encourage one another, build each other up in the faith, that together we would worship God for what he's done in all of our lives, and so that together we would reach the lost, both in our immediate location, and that we would partner together to send people out to preach the gospel in other locations where it is not being proclaimed. It's a group effort. It's something that we've all signed up for when we were saved. Now, I want to talk about, a, again, group evangelism, or as one author calls it, that's Max Stiles, uh, he calls it a culture of evangelism. And so for the rest of our time, I, we're going to address three questions. Three questions. I, I want to just overview, again, what is evangelism to make sure that we're, we're clear on it. We know exactly what it is that we're talking about when we say evangelism. What is a culture of evangelism? In other words, what does this look like to do this all together? What does it look like for all of us to be committed to, to prioritize, to own the fact uh, that we have a responsibility to reach the loss? Number three, how do I participate in a culture of evangelism? Just practically, what does it look like? So number one, what is evangelism? What is evangelism? I remember uh, Katie and I, my wife and I were out of town. Uh, we were down in San Diego uh, on vacation and there's always the the Sunday debate. You know what it's like. You're out of town on vacation and it's a Sunday and there's that debate. Do we go to church? Do we not? Do we sleep in? Well, we're off. Maybe this is our week off. What do we do? Uh, and we said, no, let's go to church. Let's check one out. And there was a very popular church in the area. You go, this is a well-known church. This guy's got you know, some, 
some Twitter influence. So let's, let's give it a go and see how it happens. And so we went to this church and they had a guest speaker that day. It was a, a man from Australia uh, and he was an evangelist. And like, oh, this guy is a renowned evangelist. And uh, it was interesting. Uh, there were some interesting things. He was just like, God loves us. And he was talking about, how do we know that God's love us? Why did God choose to love us? And I'm thinking like, you know, reform doctrine, in spite of ourselves, free grace. I'm like, yes, this is going to be great. And he's like, let me tell you why God loves us. I remember when my wife was pregnant and I put my hand on her belly and I felt the baby kick. And that warmth that I felt, that's God's love for us. And I thought, okay, you know, TMI, uh, but that's, that's fine. And, and it was amazing. Here's why I was so amazed by this guy. Because at the end, they did an altar call, and so many people got saved, despite the fact that the gospel was never presented. I mean, you want to talk about gifted evangelists. To see people convert, I'm being sarcastic here, work with me, people. But, right, you want to talk about a gifted evangelist. He's so good that people get converted without the gospel being shared, right? So, like, it was, that one was all altar call, you know, God can complete the whole in you today, you know, whatever. So there was that. I remember being in fourth grade and, and going to a large church where it was the bow your head. If you want to turn to Jesus right now, just raise your hand. And I remember, you know, thinking, man, this is taking a long time. Uh, this is long. There's one more out there. There's got to be one more. And I'm like, okay, is it, who is it? And then I start thinking, it's taking long enough. Like, oh, well, maybe it's me. I mean, maybe, maybe everyone's just kind of waiting on me to raise, you know, I need to raise my hand and then we can move on. So I did. Uh, and it worked. So there you go. Um, long, long time. Uh, or I, I remember talking uh, again, a uh, about a man who ran a youth camp who his whole point was earn the right to be heard. And instead of preaching, it was, we're going to have a week of fun. And on the last night, we'll share the gospel. And because we built those relationships, we'll see if it's effective. Uh, are those evangelism? Does that consist of evangelism? Is it the altar call? Uh, is, is it the, you know, the relationship, earn the right to be heard? What is it? Now, before going forward, uh, before moving on in the passage, God can use those sorts of events, those sorts of means to reach people. How many of you were saved at something like that? At something with an altar call, anything? There's usually a few, yeah, yeah, that's okay. Don't be ashamed. There's a guy last Sunday who said he got saved at a harvest crusade. You know what we should all say? Praise God. That's awesome. The gospel was proclaimed. Was it in the exact practice that we always feel comfortable with? Maybe not. He was converted. God can use those things. But the question is, what exactly is, if we're trying to define it biblically, what is it? Uh, what does it look like? Uh, there's, for sake of time, I'm, I'm going to just give a definition that uh, was provided. Uh, this is, again, is by Max Stiles. Here's, here's the definition of evangelism that he gave. His definition is, here it is, evangelism is teaching the gospel with the aim to persuade now, I like this definition because it fits in your pocket. It's, it's small. Uh, I think sometimes we think evangelism, we can maybe have a definition that's really robust. Maybe we're trying to be really careful uh, to, uh, in our definition, combat all the bad and wrong thinking on evangelism. I think that's fine. But he talks about evangelism is teaching the gospel with the aim to persuade. Now, think about it in four parts. Evangelism is teaching heralding, proclaiming, preaching. It's teaching the gospel, you know, the good news of what God has done for us with the aim, with a hope, with a desire, with a goal, uh, and then to persuade, to convince or convert. 
let me, let me uh, explain this uh, a little bit more, and I'll kind of do it in those four parts in regards of teaching, gospel, and aim, and persuade. Uh, what is it? It's, it's teaching. Evangelism, first and foremost, includes teaching. Uh, we see that in Jesus. Jesus' ministry, though, what's most well-known and was popular was his miracles. In the height of Mark chapter 1, when Jesus has all sorts of people coming to him because he's healing anyone that comes to them, and he's casting out demons, what does he say? He says to them, let us go somewhere else to the towns nearby so that I may preach there also, for that is what I came for. And Paul and Timothy says, for this I was appointed as a preacher and an apostle, telling the truth, not lying, as a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Evangelism is primarily a act of preaching, teaching, proclaiming, instructing. We are trying to relay truth to people. They need to understand the truth of the gospel, of what it really means to follow Christ. It involves heralding. What do you find in Acts when the church is spread out? It says Saul was in hearty agreement with putting him to death. And on that day, a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Some devout men buried Stephen and made loud, loud lamentation over him. But Saul began ravaging the church, entering house after house and dragging off men and women. He put them in prison. But therefore, those who had been scattered went about preaching the word. Again, Luke 24, Jesus says that of this truth, uh, verse 47, that he hopes that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You, you see, evangelism is not just merely showing the gospel. You guys know that. It's not just merely living it out. There does have to be truth conveyed. Uh, what's wrong with, with people is, is not that they've got a wrong view on morality, though they do have a wrong view of morality. Uh, but here's, the, here's the, the fact. They could see your good life, and nobody looking at your good life is going to go, man, you know, John is just a stand-up guy at work. He's always on time. He's always kind and gracious in his tone. Huh. You know, I must be a reprobate sinner who could do no good works on his own to earn favor with God. And the only way for me to be made right is through a foreign righteousness, right? Like, nobody jumps to that conclusion. All right, people might see our good works, but then they need to hear the truth. Uh, so it's, it's more than just living it out. It's more than just doing gospel works for others to see. It is explaining the truth. So let's take it a little step further. Inviting someone to church is not in itself evangelism, though I'm going to argue later, you need to invite people to church, and that's part of a culture of evangelism. It's a huge part of it. Just being kind at work is not in itself evangelism. They might see your kindness and just assume you're a Mormon. Uh, that's what they thought in my hometown if you were a nice person. Josh must be a Mormon. That's, that's what they thought. Uh, we must boldly speak the truth about God to others. It's sharing what God is like. And I'm going to, uh, that's in my notes there. People sometimes talk about sharing the gospel. It's more than sharing. It's proclaiming. It's speaking. It's telling. Uh, you know, I know it's semantics. It's okay. To, I, I'm okay if you do use the word sharing. But it's more purposeful than that. It's not just, well, let me tell you. No, we're telling them this is the truth about God, not just expressing our own opinion. 
And so we should teach, but what should we teach? What is it that we need to explain? Well, we explain the gospel. So it's teaching, and it's back to our definition. Uh, it's teaching, and it's teaching the gospel. We proclaim, we explain, we discuss the good news, the greatest news. I mean, this is the greatest thing that's ever been proclaimed, the greatest reality in all of existence. Just think about some of these verses on their own. 1 Timothy 1.15, it is a trustworthy statement deserving a full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That's the news we get to tell people. Jesus came to rescue sinners. Uh, we, it should say, should say 2 Corinthians 5.21, we get to say that God made Christ who was sinless become sin on our behalf so that we might become righteous in him. We get to tell people that if you receive him, to as many as received Christ, you have the right to become children of God. That's good news, that sinners can be forgiven, that reprobates enemies of God become children of God. That's the news that we get to proclaim, that we get to speak. And so what is this good news? Uh, what is it? Well, this is an oversimplification, but we need to tell people who God is and what he has done for sinners. You know, the, the, how many of you have done the evangelism class or evangelism training thing here before after church? If you've never done that, they have a, a, just a great little handout, uh, a four-part way to share the gospel. And though it's simple, it's a great simplification. An explanation that God is good. God is not some angry old man in the sky like everyone thinks he is, or he's not some figment of our imagination, but he's unimaginably good and glorious. And that we in our sin are unimaginably separated from him. Not just because we've disobeyed his law, but we've personally attacked him. We share that news. We share the good news that Jesus is the Savior, that, that Jesus came to rescue us from our sin, and we share that we must respond rightly. That in order to accept this, you must take all of who Christ is, surrendering all of who you are. Now, now a few thoughts on this. Uh, preach the good news, Christian, like it's good news. Not like it's something you're obligated to share. Not as something like, you know, you're in, you know, like when you were a kid, you were embarrassed what kind of music your parents listened to. Like, yeah, my church believes this. No, share it like this is good news to you. Uh, share it like it's good news, not good advice. You, you understand the difference between news and advice, right? Advice is this is what you have to do. News is what has been done. We don't share moralism. Uh, you know, share it of uh, knowing what the cost is and preach a gospel that's worthy of the cost. Friend, I would just ask you here this morning, do you know the gospel? Do you actually know the reality and trust in the reality that Jesus came to save us because we could not save ourselves? I'm a high school pastor who works with kids who grew up in church. I talked to a student two weeks ago that told me that if he was going to tell somebody how to get saved, he would tell them three things. They need to believe God is real, they need to go to church, and they need to read their Bible. And I was sad, because why? That's moralism. That's not how we get saved. I would just ask you, if someone were to ask you why you're a Christian, would your explanation actually include the gospel? Or would it be some sort of tradition you've always kept? If it's something you've had a struggle with, not good to explain the gospel, I'd highly recommend there's a book by Greg Gilbert called What is the Gospel? You can pick that up, pick that up in the bookstore. Let me give two more things and I need to move on to question. Uh, aim, uh, I need to move on to question number two. Aim, we need to have the right aim in our evangelism. Uh, we need to have the right focus. It's the aim to persuade. 
In my hometown, uh, we had a lot of Mormons, like a lot of Mormons, uh, Mormons everywhere. So Sundays were not the day to hang out because they, you know, wouldn't go out. And, and I'll tell you the mistake I had. My mistake was that I wanted to win. I wanted to win the argument. So I wanted to tell them, here's why Joseph Smith uh, was a false prophet. Here's what you, you really think Jesus was Satan's brother. But look what 1 Peter 3.15 says. It says, sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. That our aim is not to beat people up and to win. Our aim is that people would come to know Jesus that people would confess their sin and put their trust in Christ, uh, that, that they would turn from idols and, and follow after him. Our aim is not that they'd acknowledge that we have the correct opinion or that we've got the right political party. Our aim is to see the dead turn to life, that they would actually believe on the Lord Christ, owning their own sinfulness. Our aim is conversion. Listen to Paul's heart. I love this, Romans 9. It says, I'm telling you the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience testifies with my, me in, my, in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Romans 10, he says, Brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is for their salvation. You know, is that our aim when we share? that we actually want to see people rescued or we want to fulfill our duty and show people why they're wrong. Finally, we want to persuade. Persuade, 2 Corinthians 5, 11. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. We do not want to manipulate, but we want much more than a data transfer. I want them to do more than know the truth. I want them to believe the truth, to treasure Christ, and to actually follow after him. That is our aim. That's what evangelism is. Very simple definition of that. We could have gone on more and more and more. Notice, by the way, that definition is not part of that is success. Uh, not part of that definition is results. Uh, we hope for results, but we ultimately trust the Lord and his sovereignty with that. And that's something you got questions about. Again, that J.I. Packer book, Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God, highly, highly recommend that. So here's, here's, our, here's where we're at. We know what evangelism is. Evangelism is teaching the gospel with the aim to persuade. We know that's the mission of the church. That's our mission together. But what I want to focus on now is that this is not something we do individually. And you might be thinking, that like, all right, I got to change. I got to change. That's true. We all do need to change. But this, this is something that we all do together. Uh, this is what Max Stiles calls should take place in a culture of evangelism. That within the church, there's a commitment that we all have together towards evangelism. That we're working on this. That it, it's, how do I say this? How many of you have ever watched a kid's soccer game? There's like, you know, watch the five or six-year-olds playing soccer. And what happens when the team is on defense? Who's on defense? Everybody's on defense. Everybody's running after the ball. And when the team's on offense, who's on offense? everybody's running on offense, right? And they're all just falling. It's just like a mass all falling together throughout the field. Well, that's a little bit of what church evangelism is supposed to be like, not in the sense that we're all doing the exact same thing, but we all have the same priority. This matters to, to each of us. We all do this together. As high school pastor, I, I want to give you kind of the contrary that's been brought to me. There's been a, a few times where somebody has said, you know, my son 
and his friends really like basketball, can we start a basketball outreach? And that way we can evangelize the basketball players. Or I know someone that's very gifted in music. Maybe we could start a music, maybe you, Josh, should start a music outreach so we could reach out to the music people. That's a good definition there, music people. I'm good with words, uh, right? That, that's, that's kind of the thing. And, and when I hear that, I think their heart's in the right spot. That's good. But what they're thinking is, oh, there's evangelistic need. Can the church, the leaders, start a program to meet that need? And maybe I do need to meet some of those needs. Every time it comes, like, I'll think about it. I don't want to disregard it. But all I want you to think about is when there's a need, what should be the response is not that the church, the leaders start a program, but that the church, the people, find a way to meet that need. How can the people reach those people need to hear the gospel? So here's, here's what I would call a culture of evangelism. Culture of evangelism is when the members of the church instinctively prioritize and commit themselves to proclaiming the gospel to the lost. So when the members of the church instinctively prioritize and commit themselves to evangelism or the preaching of the gospel to the lost. It is an instinct. It is a priority. It is a commitment that we all take part in. Maybe not all in the same way and in a church our size in multiple different ways, but it's still all our commitment and priority. Let me show you that this is the pattern of the New Testament. Go to Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1. This is the part of our talk now where we're going to talk more so about what does whole church evangelism look like. And we see it's a pattern in the scriptures. It's a pattern that evangelism is not just a ministry. It's not only for certain gifted people. It's something we're all to be committed to and that they all were committed to. And when I say they, I mean New Testament believers. Philippians chapter 1, starting in verse 3, Paul says, I thank my God in all remembrance of you always in every prayer of mine for you all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Paul is thanking them for their partnership, uh, for teaming with Paul in sharing, proclaiming the gospel. So you might ask, well, what did that partnership look like? What does it mean that they partnered with Paul? It wasn't just that Paul did it. It's that they did it with him. Well, how? One of them is they themselves proclaimed. And I think that's what, I think that's implied. And I think that's what Paul is trying to encourage them to continue doing in verse 12. He says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. He's saying, though I'm in jail. So that has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of our brothers, having become more confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Now, here's what I think Paul's trying to do there. He's saying, you're worried that I'm in prison about how that might affect your life. Well, let me tell you that my imprisonment has encouraged the preaching of the gospel because others are proclaiming the gospel. They're emboldened by what I'm doing. And so therefore, you keep preaching the gospel. You see, it's not just the preachers that share it. It's all of us that share it. It's all of us that speak it. It's all of us that should be able to explain it to others. We also see at the end of Philippians 4, how else do they partner? In their giving, in their resources. I won't read it now, but in Philippians 4, 15 to 19, he explains to them that they have provided everything that he needs for his ministry. 
Think about the book of Acts. We won't look at these you could, for the sake of time, but you could jot these down. Acts chapter 2, what happens? What happens is Peter preaches and a bunch of people get saved. But, but what do we read in Acts chapter 2, verse 46 to 48? That as the believers lived it out and, and lived out their trust in Christ, they were proclaiming and that day by day more were added to their numbers. Acts 2 is not saying that was not just the work of the apostles. That was the work of the people. And we saw in Acts 8, the apostles stayed in Jerusalem, right? It was the people that went out in the gospel advance, so much so that sometimes an apostle would show up and people in that area had already trusted in Jesus. So what do we find? It's the mission of the church. One more, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. By the way, do you notice in your New Testament there's never a verse that says, hey, you guys got to stop being afraid and need to share the gospel a little bit more? That verse is just not in my Bible. Uh, and I don't think it's in yours either, therefore, it's, to, be, to be clear. But, uh, uh, but they never had to tell them to start speaking up. This is just something these people were committed to. This is what genuine believers in Jesus were committed to. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, uh, starting, or we're going to just read verse 8. It says, for not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. These people proclaimed the truth because they loved Jesus and their priorities were aligned with Paul's. They wanted to see the gospel proclaimed. They wanted to see or hear of the loss uh, receiving the word. That was their priority. That's a New Testament priority. And friends, that should be our priority as well. When we gather, yes, we sing. And when you gather both here at church and throughout your community during the week, yes, you encourage one another. You pray for one another. You ask questions to help encourage one another in Christ. But are we working together for the proclamation of the gospel? Are we working together in our evangelism? When we gather, is the gospel shared? When we leave, do we leave with gospel purpose? When we reunite, do we share the progress of the gospel? When we fellowship, is the gospel on display in our actions, how we speak and treat one another? When we speak, is our speech seasoned with gospel? Is that something that you would say is your pri a priority in your Christian relationships? Again, our goals when we meet together is that we worship God, reach the lost, equip the saints. See, what I love about this is it's not just an individual work, but it's also not a program work. It's not just me doing it. It's not just them doing it. It's us doing it. Would you say that then that your Christian friendships, do they look different than your worldly friendships? I mean, I'm assuming they look somewhat different. They sound somewhat different. Hopefully the language would maybe be cleaner than friendships exist in the world. But are the priorities any different? Or do you talk about sports, job, family, traffic, just as much? You see, yes, we're united in Christ. We're also united in the mission of Christ. We share the same bond. And so part of our priority when we're together should be, is the gospel advancing? Is it going forward? Now, what does this look like? What does this look like? Well, this could look like partnering in your fellowship group. That when you and the people in your fellowship get together, that you have a commitment to the proclamation of the gospel. This could look like local moms in your areas. That you and other moms that are believers have students at the same school. And so you reach out to the other moms at that school. You pray for that school. 
Maybe you volunteer at that school so you might build a relationship with a teacher so that you might share the gospel. Students, this maybe looks like at your school, you're working with fellow believers on your campus or you're working with fellow coworkers. Sometimes when we hear evangelism, we think now it's Lone Ranger time. No, we actually partner together in this. This is something that we could all do, that we are committed to the proclamation of the gospel to such a degree that we strategize our schedules, our speech, and our conduct so that the lost might hear the truth. You know, this is the part where I started listing out what does it practically look like? What does practically a culture evangelism look like? And to be honest, that's hard to explain what a culture looks like. That's like explaining a foreign culture. You can't really give the details until you've like been there. You need to see it. But again, I would just say when believers get together is the priority evangelism. Not the only priority and not the supreme priority, but is it a priority? That we have an understanding, you know, unbelievers could be there. We have an understanding that we need to encourage one another, that we need to pray, give time, give resources. By the way, friends, if you're confused about this, I would just encourage you, look around. This is a church that prioritizes evangelism, that there's a lot of evangelism going on together. Uh, so first of all, think about the preaching at Grace Community Church. Now, how often, guaranteed this morning, Mike Riccardi will, will speak directly to unbelievers in the audience. Right? That is a part of the way that our church is partnering together for the gospel. So that way you can trust that if you bring your unsaved neighbor to church, he or she will hear the gospel. Uh, think about uh, missionaries, that we have missionaries going out, people giving money so that the gospel might go forward. All the missionaries on our campus. Think about the VBS outreach we had last week, that you had volunteers, people building stuff, people teaching, people building the crafts that I still couldn't do at my age, people working on all those things. Why? Because So that young children would hear the gospel. It's a commitment to seeing the truth. Not only that, but, but think about the informal ways that this happens. So how many baptism testimonies on Sunday nights have you heard where somebody said, I was invited to church and I just interacted with God's people and hearing the truth, they got saved. Right? Well, that's, that's what a culture of evangelism looks like. Uh, many, many of you maybe even showed up to church because you were invited and you got saved maybe because of a sermon or maybe just because of a friend who was faithful to share the gospel with you. This is, uh, th this is what it looks like, is that everywhere we see the gospel going out, we see it as a priority. And this is, uh, this is what we see as a, uh, this is a good thing that we do this together as well. Uh, you should leave helped by this and encouraged by this. There's several reasons why. One is for the sake of encouragement so that you might see the way that other people evangelize, and that might help your evangelism as well. Uh, I remember one of, the, uh, one of the blessings I had as a discipler that I had in high school was a man by the name of John. Um, here's what was great about John is, is John liked sports like I liked sports. He liked basketball like I like basketball. Uh, but what John would do is he'd go to the same LA fitness, play ball probably four or five days a week. And here's what he was consistent in getting to know people at that gym. Uh, he would learn their names. He would learn their religious beliefs. It didn't all happen in one. It's just as he acted like, you know, like, a, like a normal human. I uh, would talk to them, ask them about their life. He would, he would proclaim the truth to them. And then here's what else he would then do. He'd invite them to church. I'd get a text. Hey, are you coming over to watch the game tonight? Yes. 
hey, by the way, so-and-so from LA Fitness is coming over. They're not a Christian. Get to know them. Do you see what he did there? A, he modeled to me what I ought to be doing, bringing the unbelievers into my life. And B, there is a partnership that happened, right? So many of you, you're missing out on ways that you could be encouraged because you keep thinking it's something you need to muster up in yourself. Learn what other people are doing and emulate. You don't need to be original on this, but be encouraged by other believers. Uh, it's also just an encouragement for people to ask and know what's going on in your life, uh, for people to hear how you're sharing the gospel, for you to learn from others what's the best way to do that. So for example, you're sharing the gospel with a Mormon, you're sharing the gospel with a Catholic, you have no idea what, idea what to say, but some man or some woman in your fellowship group is a former Catholic or a former Mormon. Hey, I would love to learn from you, brother or sister, so that way I can know what scriptures helped you so I could relay it to them. Does that make sense? Now that it's this, this partnership that's going on, it, it, and, but it only happens if we prioritize it. If we talk about the same things with our believing friends as we do with our unbelieving friends, just maybe a little bit cleaner over here, uh, then we're not going to be able to pull this off together. It, it's good also to have teammates. Teammates, my, my example of this that I love is, comes from the world of youth ministry where this, this happens a lot. Uh, there's a young man named Carlos uh, who's a, uh, a Christian today. Let me tell you how Carlos became a Christian. Carlos was invited by a friend to a volleyball tournament. At that volleyball tournament, other friends were who were believers befriended Carlos, made a relationship with him. I, as a youth pastor, got to know him, uh, invited him to camp, and made sure that he got a scholarship so that he can go to camp. He had a small group leader that met personally with him throughout the week, and he had the preacher proclaiming the gospel throughout the week. I don't think Carlos can give credit to one person that was the human instrument for his conversion. But Carlos became a Christian. Why? Because of the sovereignty of God and God's grace in his life, and as a result of the whole church investing into him. That's what it looks like, friends. You have teammates. So let's say you're going to Sunday morning. You've got an unsaved friend that you have convinced, persuaded, tricked, whatever word you want to use, uh, to coming to church with you. You know, we can actually text our unsaved, or, uh, not our unsaved, text our fellow believers here at church and say, hey, so-and-so's coming today. I'd love for you to get to know them. These are easy ways to share the gospel. In fact, you could even just say, text your friend, hey, let's all go to lunch today after church so that way we can interact on a more personal level with so-and-so who does not trust in Jesus. I know that sounds radical and crazy, but I think that's so much better than once every six months having a big outreach event, right? Doesn't that seem like it would just be much more effective? And we know that because it's happened before. So again, it's, it's why to partner together. Partnering together also could just look like praying together. Uh, praying for evangelists, I'll get in a second, but man, isn't it more encouraging when you know someone's praying for you? Uh, I, I have a high school student that I shared about a conversation I had uh, with a man on an airplane, told this guy about the gospel, we were gonna follow up, uh, sent this guy an email right after, told this student to be praying for him. Well, this student uh, texted me a month later, hey, how is so-and-so doing? And I was encouraged and convicted, A, because I'd forgotten about so-and-so, but encouraged that someone else was praying for their conversion. So what did I do? I sent that person an email, followed up with him. There's no follow-up conversation that happened. I wish I could tell you that that story ended well. But what I like about it is the encouragement to me because someone else was praying for them. So again, that is what a culture of evangelism looked like. By the way, there are thousands of practical ways that this could look like. The best way to learn it is just from fellow believers by asking them, 
Who are you witnessing to? What are the things you're doing? How can I be praying for the lost in your life? And have them ask you the same question. Finally, let's go to the third question. I'm gonna jump ahead. Number three, how do I participate in a culture of evangelism? I've just, I've just shared a bunch. Let me give you a handful more of just practical, practical ways. One is celebrate the gospel. If you're hearing this, and this sounds either like a burden or this sounds boring, well, the boring could be my fault, and if so, I apologize. Uh, but if this just does not sound thrilling to you, I just encourage you, friend, to remember what it is that we're doing. We're not sleazy salespeople trying to sell some item for three easy payments of $9.99. Uh, th this is not some sales pitch we've been given. This is the miraculous truth that God rescues sinners. Warm your heart in the reality that that is news that you do not deserve, that I do not deserve. But what we proclaim is, is truth that has rescued us. It's one way. Here's another way, warm your heart. Another way is to live out the gospel when you're together. Remember 1 Peter 2, 2 12, keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles. Why? Because at the end, if they observe your good deeds, they may glorify God in the day of visitation. Part of a culture of evangelism realizes that our evangelism, the effectiveness of it will be related to our holiness. Something I ask the high school students a lot, and I get in their kitchen a little bit about it, but I will ask them about it is, is the way you're living, is the way that your friendships look at Bible study any different than the world? Would it be attractive to the world? Would the same drama, that that's a high school term, that exists in the world pop its head at your Wednesday night Bible study? And if so, what would be their motivation for coming? Why would they want to come? Like, we try to have fun, but we're also kind of cheesy church games. We're not going to be that compelling in our entertainment. Uh, what should will be compelling is that we live different, that we live distinct. How do I participate in a culture of evangelism? Well, preach the gospel. It's an easy way. Start doing it. Just start explaining it to people. Whenever you can get in a conversation, it doesn't always have to be this formal thing. Uh, it could always just be asking, starting by asking the question, what do you believe about God? Man, there was an earthquake the other night. Man, we could have all died. Hey, what would happen to you if you died? You know, I know cheesy, but, you know, use these bridges. They're out there for a reason. Uh, you know, I was trying to think of an NBA one, but anyway, we'll move on from there. Uh, you know, let me give you another one. Culture of evangelism. Stop assuming that everyone at church is a Christian. Stop assuming that everyone here is a believer. Now, don't assume that everyone here is not. I'm not saying that. Don't assume that no one is a Christian. I know you may be tempted to think that sometimes while you're trying to park, but that was a joke. Uh, but, but, but don't assume that everyone that has showed up is actually a believer. Assume that non-believers are here. Uh, assume that non-Christians are there. Here's a fifth way, partner with others. So start partnering, start scheming, start talking about with others. How can we do this more effectively? Again, informal ways and formal ways. So formal ways, programmed ways might be through VBS, volunteer, through ministries like children's ministry that share the gospel, volunteer, uh, Christmas concert, take advantage of that. You know the gospel is going to be proclaimed. Evangelism ministry, Monday night sports outreach here. Uh, look through the grace today and see all the different evangelism events that are going on. Easter and Christmas services, those are all the formal ways, but think also of the informal, the casuals, the non-programmatic ways of evangelism. Think about next time in main service when, you know, it's always raise your hand and one of the ushers will get you a, a new visitor packet. 
Have you ever introduced yourself to one of those people that raised their hand? Think about, well, I'm assuming somebody brought them, but maybe not. Or maybe the person that brought them is having a hard time introducing them to other people besides just them. Go meet the new people. You don't know if they're a believer or not. They could be a solid believer who's just moved to the area. This might be the person's first time coming to church. Get to meet them. Informal will be lunch after church. Invite to lunch after church. Invite people over for meals. You're having a fun game night with other families in your fellowship group? Invite one or two unsaved families from the area. It's an easy way to expose them to the gospel. And isn't that an easier way than just trying to like, we're going to go to Starbucks one-on-one and then I'll speak to you about it? These are ways to get the truth out there. Uh, bringing them to, just bringing them to church. Think about how often you hear the church or hear the gospel on a Sunday. You hear it in the songs that we sing, right? Most of our songs give clear explanation of the gospel. You'll hear it in the sermon. If you come to baptism on Sunday night, like tonight I'm doing baptism, I have three high school students. That means any non-believer is going to hear the gospel at least three times in three different testimonies. Ever thought about bringing that? Here's one I haven't tried and I've wanted to do. Your fellowship group, you've got someone being baptized. You know, it always drives me nuts. Have you ever seen how baptism gets done? And then like the floodgates open up and all the people that came only for the baptism left. Has anyone ever seen this on a Sunday night? Maybe, maybe not. You should uh, and go to Sunday night. Uh, But if you're there, like you'll see like 10 to 15 people every time walk out. You know, I've always thought it'd be great to have like a reception afterwards that you could purposely bring people from your fellowship group to meet some of the unsaved family that only came to church because their nephew was getting baptized. It's just being strategic, prioritizing, scheming even with others on how to do that. I like that word in this situation. Thinking of different ways, again, wherever the Spirit prompts you, but find ways to do that. Invite people where they hear the gospel. I already said that. And then finally, here's the last one, and I don't have time to give all this stuff on this. Pray. Be praying for conversion. You know, the Bible, you could look this up later, talks a lot about praying for the lost. Ephesians 6, 19, 20 Paul prays for boldness. Which, by the way, if Paul prayed for boldness, I think it's okay for us to be praying for boldness as well and maybe to not feel so bad when we're not as bold. Colossians 4, 3 and 4, he prays for opportunity. So you could pray for boldness and you could pray for opportunity. In uh, in Matthew chapter 9, verse 37, 38, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Therefore, beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into the harvest. You can pray for fellow workers. So your heart is burdened for a campus or your your job. Well, pray that God would save some or send others. And then finally, pray for conversion. Pray for people to get saved. You know, think about Moses interceding on behalf of Israel. God hears that. My favorite example is Mark chapter 2, the paralytic. says that Jesus, seeing their faith, said, my son, your sins are forgiven. It wasn't just the faith of the paralytic. He's He saw the faith of the people that brought him forward. We ought to be bringing our prayer, bringing the loss before God in prayer. And you know what? Here's the last thought on that. Last sentence, we're done. When we pray for that, do you realize that you are asking God for something he already wants to do? When you go to God and pray for the conversion of the loss, you're praying to the God who wishes that none would perish who cause all to put their trust in him. Isn't that good when we pray for that? And isn't it encouraging when you have others who are teaming with you to pray for those very same people? 
Let's be bringing those people to God in prayer. Let me pray and we'll be done this morning. Father, thank you for uh, this time. Thank you for your truth. Thank you, God, for the encouragement that we have that we get to do all this together, that you've not called us on our own to individually convert the world, but that you have saved your church and you have put us together so that we might be partners in the ministry of reconciliation. God, ultimately, we know that any conversion that we see is all your work. And so we just pray that you'd help us to be faithful, that we'd be devoted to one another, that we'd be devoted to you, and that we would be committed to proclaiming your truth to the lost. We thank you, Lord. We love you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.